everyone, it's Fuds on Film, you probably knew that. I am Craig Eastman, tonight I am joined by Scott Morris. Well, hello. Drew Tavendale. Hello there. And various forms of alcohol. We will be looking at Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Ron's Gone Wrong, Finch, The French Dispatch, and a film called Dunny. Dun, Dun, oh, I don't know. Let's... Um, so let's uh, go to Scott to kick off with Venom, Let There Be Carnage, shall we? Yes, uh, we never talked about the first Venom film at the time it was released because I hadn't seen it, which seems as good a reason as any. Uh, we also didn't talk about it some months later when I caught up with it, um, on my part at least, because I was only half watching it. And But even so, it didn't seem half as bad as my impression of the general consensus would have led me to believe. So that was enough to tempt me to the cinema to watch the follow-up, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And also because the trailer promised the Tom Hardy, Woody Harrelson scenery-chewing Gurnoff. Sign me up. Um, <laughs> So, uh, this sees Hardy's Eddie Brock having reached something of a detente with uh, his superpowered alien symbiote Venom, uh, with absolutely no eating people allowed, even the bad people. Uh, but Venom's straining at the leash, wanting to get out and see the world, meet people, eat some of them, while Eddie's insisting on laying low what with being at least a person of interest to Stephen Graham's detective Patrick Mulligan for the chaos of the last film. He's trying with little success to restart his journalism career, but his luck changes when he's called into prison to interview a death row inmate, Wood Harrelson's Cletus Cassidy, a very crazy serial killer who's refusing to give up the location of his victims. Much to Mulligan's chagrin, Eddie slash Venom crack the case to plot its aplenty, but Cassidy gets something unexpected out of it too, with a bite and a taste of symbiote blood, leading to the spawn of another symbiote, Carnage. Just as Cassidy is coming into his superpowers, the tension between Eddie and Venom finally boils over and they separate. Just the wrong timing, as Cassidy breaks out of prison and sets about breaking out his also kinda crazy girlfriend, Naomi Harris's Frances Barrison, or Shriek, due to her ability to create powerful sonic blasts with her voice. Will Eddie and Venom be able to get their act together and defeat Carnage and Shriek? Hmm. Well, Obviously, this is not something that's looking to break any moulds. And to be honest, it's kind of refreshing in this day and age to watch a comic book adaptation that, well, seems like it wants to be a comic book adaptation and keeps any delusions of grandeur in check. (laughs) It's a big, goofy film with a silly plot, silly characters and silly action set pieces and gets out of your way in about 90 minutes. It's like a refugee from another time. (laughs) The multiverse truly is imploding. Director Gollum keeps things battering along at a fair old clip. Uh, the performances are, well, let's politely say broad, but fitting for the material, and the action sequences are adequate to fairly groundbreaking. Uh, there's also a few decent lines in amongst the more serviceable parts of the script. I'm not going to go to bat for Venom, let there be carnage, being a masterwork of cinema, but it's a very entertaining slice of oakum of the kind I wish Marvel would embrace more closely. And maybe with the post-credit scene and the impending cluster cuddle of Spider-Man No Way Home, we'll get that, but I am not holding my breath. Uh, yes, yes. Um, if you if you're one of the people who kind of caught up with that first film and thought it was decent, then this is mm, a touch better than it. Uh, so it's uh, a mild recommendation. It's, it's, it's not going to change your world, but uh, yeah, it's it's... It's fun, and as I say, it doesn't uh, take up too much of your time, and sometimes that's all I'm looking for in a slice of cinema. So, yeah, give it a go. I'm one of those people who caught up with the original one and thought it was decent. So, I just... You're exactly the target audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, I just watched it a couple of weeks ago for the first time, and thought, yes, this isn't bad, I quite like this. It's quite funny, and not take itself seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I did want to see if Let There Be Carnage just didn't get around to it, uh, but I did, from the moment I saw the running time, appreciate it. I thought, yes, 90 minutes, this is the life a comic book film should be, because it's a comic book film. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. it can be very enjoyable. They ought not to be three hours long. 
Well, I haven't seen any of the Venom films, and yet I still feel quite confident in passing my judgment as... Make of that what you will. <laughs> Shall I talk about Ron's gone wrong? <laughs> Shall I? I was, I was, I was drifting back over to Michael Kinder. Shall I talk about Ron's gone wrong? Yes, let's move on to Ron's gone wrong. Let's move on to Ron has gone wrong. Uh, Ron's Gone Wrong is the debut feature from Studio Locksmith Animation. It's the simple tale of a middle schooler named Barney, voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer, and his always online, artificially intelligent, roaming robot social media platform, Bebot Ron. Zach Galafalafo Banana Khakis, or... <laughs> yeah. Barney begins the movie somewhat of an outcast, the only one in his school not in possession of a Bebot, the omnipresent tech toy which bonds with its owner and facilitates an endless stream of content generation out of their day-to-day activities. In a pure facsimile of actual social interaction, the Bebot platform makes influencers of a select few kids and followers of the rest, a situation which bizarrely, but I suppose necessarily for the plot, seems officially sanctioned by the school system, with rows of Bebot storage racking replacing lockers throughout the corridor. And I guess I would like to say that this is some sort of glimpse at a, a, a terrible techno future, but I, if you replace B-Bots with mobile phones, I suppose this film is really about the status <laughs> quo. Barney's single-parent father, Graham, Ed Helms, runs a cheap novelty import business out of the house, as one does, and simply isn't in a position to afford a B-Bot for his son until... Racked by guilt at his son's social disadvantage, he is able to buy a slightly damaged model quite literally off the back of a van outside the headquarters of Bubble, the tech giant creators responsible for this craze. Now, the last time I had faulty tech, the extent of my ensuing adventure was making an appointment as a genius bar just for some gratingly hip insta-clone half my age to patronise me, presumably because my failure to wear skinny jeans and transparently framed glasses offended their generative adversarially networked sensibilities. Fortunately for Barney, he of course exists inside a movie, so in his case it translates to zany fun time shenanigans, as his bebot Ron, bereft of safety protocols, teaches him and his classmates the meaning of true friendship, while sticking it to the man in the turtleneck sweater at the top of the big tech pyramid. If Ron's gone wrong has a message, however subtle, it's that social media is absolute soul-destroying bullshit which poisons people's minds by preying on their insecurities and negatively reinforcing their existing prejudices in pursuit of an infinitely recursive model of marketing monetization. <laughs> Not a bad message, really, but for the fact that Ron doesn't quite follow through on its message by taking it to the logical conclusion of its child protagonist denouncing social media. They don't. Instead, they find some equilibrium. And I suppose Suppose all things in moderation is a more positive message than assimilate. But there definitely is something <laughs> false about the movie's outcome. Nonetheless, the litmus test of Ron, which is clearly not a movie aimed at adults, is to consider the reaction of small people, by which I mean children and not midgets, obviously. And my two children, that is, not midgets, liked it well enough. That I can barely remember many details less than a fortnight later seems largely inconsequential. Ron is a competently made movie with a sensible message, a good heart, and a decent sense of humour, which will entertain small people, and possibly midgets. <laughs> with apologies to our midget community out there. So, I'm, um, I'm not going to pretend I'm in the pocket of big midget. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Wait Wait. Oh, we've been cancelled. <laughs> Yay. Yes, haven't seen this. Can't comment. No. no I, I sincerely hope neither of you have. You have very little reason to have seen it. I saw the trailer and thought, well, that's not for me. 
Yeah. Um, it's actually it's it's actually it's actually far better than the sort of. Um, I mean, if this movie were, uh, oh my god! I mean, the or the Venn diagram of how this movie overlaps its message with any other number of uh, of kids' films in recent years, I suppose it's probably in the same ballpark as things like, um, oh, what's the big inflatable robot thing? Uh, big Hero Six. Big Hero Six. Thank you, Drew. It's probably there's there's a lot of overlap with stuff like mm-hmm. that, but it's it's it's. It's surprisingly well done, and the voice performances are actually quite engaging. Nobody's really phoning it in. There's a there's a lot of good humour in it, which the kids appreciate. There's actually a surprising amount of gentle humour for a for a film whose uh, BBFC title card, I'm sure, contained uh, a warning about sort of rude humour. It's actually quite gentle in a lot of respects, and. As someone whose eldest child is probably like a year, maybe two years away from pestering me for their own phone that so they can start partaking in that whole culture, um, it, it's a message that I'm glad enough that they receive in this mm. form now at this point because I think it is an incredibly valid message. It's it's not your typical Pixar movie. It's, it's maybe not of that quality, but uh, it's it's not as bad as I expected. I didn't fall asleep watching it with them. <laughs> I didn't. Look, I didn't think it looked bad. I thought it's probably just yeah. not for me. Um, but yeah. there is there is one thing I see beyond what you, all the things you've said, Craig, that actually mm. makes it sound at least mildly appealing to me. Is that it's written by Peter Bainham, which I did not expect. Yes, uh, and a fact which I only realised earlier tonight. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that that might be enough to get me to check it out. Other than, again, other than what you've said as well. Yeah, I don't think you'd count it as his best work. Certainly, but it's. I, I think yeah. that would be unlikely for someone who's yes. watching Brass Eye. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's uh, it's pretty. It's it's better than all right. It's slightly good. <laughs> Such fulsome praise there, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it pops up on Netflix and my kids inevitably say, "Oh, Ron's gone wrong. Can we watch that?" I'm not going to say no. Yeah. All right. I'll watch that with you again. Whatever. I'll probably have I'll probably have one earbud in the one facing away from them so they can't see listening to podcasts and pretending to engage <laughs> with it. But you know I'm I'm not going to leave the room or anything. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to leave the room or anything. There's a there's a quote for the the posters. How come both of you guys have been quoted on a movie poster and I haven't? <laughs> there's the you justice need to lie in that. more. Yeah, <laughs> be less honest. <laughs> Ron would be Five disappointed. Stars. Yeah, yeah. Change my name to Paul Ross. Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we should probably move on to an, another uh, robot-centric flick, uh, which is Finch. Which one of you bad boys saw Finch? I think we both saw it, but I, I will tell people about it. I, I endorse this uh, this plan of action, Drew. <laughs> I'm glad to have your blessing. It means so much. I'm sure. In our last episode, we talked about Miguel Sapochnik's Repo Man, his only previous film directing credit. Since that film, he's made a really good name for himself in TV, in particular directing some notable action-heavy episodes of Game of Thrones, including The Battle of the Bastards and The Long Night. And before taking up his role as showrunner for the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, he's been tempted back into film by this post-apocalyptic tale that's definitely not short-circuit in Fallout. (laughs) A particularly powerful solar flare 15 years ago destroyed most of the Earth's ozone layer, leaving much of the planet in an irradiated, boiling, storm-torn hellscape. Humans are now scarce. 
thanks to the fact that stepping out unprotected into the sun will ensure you instantaneous burns and all of that unfiltered UV having frazzled all of the plant life. Much of this suits Tom Hanks Finch quite well. A misanthropic loner, Finn seems quite content to be the only human for hundreds of miles. But his will to survive continues, and he scavenges what little he can from the few unmolested stores of food left available. Mentally, he's kept going by his project to build a robot, not as a companion, but as a replacement, should anything to happen to him and there's no one left to look after his dog. His horrible, bloody cough absolutely does not suggest that there's a ticking clock on this. <laughs> Normally holed up inside his former place of work in St. Louis in Missouri, an approaching superstorm, forecast to last 40 days, and therefore meaning certain death if he stays, forces Finch to load up the not-quite-finished robot and the dog onto his RV and start heading west. Maybe San Francisco, which he's never visited, will be in better shape. The robot, voiced by Caleb Landry-Jones and, either through acting choice or sound processing effects, sounding in the early part of the film for some reason like a Russian Stephen Hawking. (laughs) In Soviet Russia, AI robot creates you. (laughs) begins to learn at an incredible rate, though apparently not quickly enough for the irascible and cantankerous Finch, who is unreasonably angry and frustrated that his creation isn't immediately perfect. After 30 minutes, the robot, who has dubbed himself Jeff, trying to act human and understand the difficult concepts like metaphor, while getting into hilarious scrapes, was already beginning to wear a little. Sadly, this was also around the time I realised, oh... This is the whole thing, isn't it? The whole Earth is a wasteland thing almost becomes incidental after a while, with Finch settling into a groove of chappy goes on a road trip. There's no jeopardy, no sense of danger. Once the road trip gets going, food magically stops becoming an issue. Where does the diesel for the RV come from? Well, it's just there, isn't it? But look at the silly robot and the cute dog. I realise now I've referenced both Chappie and Short Circuit, but they are the two obvious comparisons. And while they're the only two I can immediately bring to mind, I already feel that with them, the genre of advanced robot comically misunderstands humans before learning about them is already well enough served, and this film's extraneous. Not that it's bad per se, just unremarkable. It looks quite nice at points, and... I'm struggling to find positives. It's fine, but it's hardly the road. There's good effects work on display. (laughs) Jeff is an impressive amalgam of motion capture, CGI and puppetry, though for some reason I found the robot's constant round-shouldered hunching made me want to see it suffer and oppress like the original T-800 in The Terminator. But good effects work is pretty much a given nowadays, and it needs to be in service of something, which it isn't here. Perhaps the one remarkable thing about Finch is Tom Hanksy's performance. It begins by feeling like a very Hanksian performance, for better or worse, but I certainly didn't expect to end up hating a character played by him so much. Finch is an arsehole. That's there in the writing, of course, and much of it is explicable by the facts of Finch's situation. But even when playing a murdering mob enforcer, as in Road to Perdition, Hank still somehow manages to make his character a genial, likeable murdering mob enforcer. Not so here, where his character is a git. I like it, because I don't like it. <laughs> There's little else to recommend it, though. Too bland, too safe, 
too mushy. I guess I like this a bit more. Um, I think primarily because I wasn't quite as annoyed with Jeff the robot as as you were, which will go a long way if you're not um, if, you're, if you're not quite as irritated by one of the two characters in it. Then yes, it's uh, probably going to help with your overall enjoyment levels. Um, yeah, but ultimately, I, mean, I think this has been on the shelf for a few years, right? It's not something that's new. It has very much the feel of something that was made during coronavirus, kind of limited, you know, on on set. Uh, people and all that stuff, but I don't think it has. I think it's been sat around for a while. Uh, it was um, filmed in 2019, I think, so it's actually a predates it, but it has to have that sort of feel because there's so few people. Yeah, I can see why, certainly why studios were not in a massive rush to release it, but also why a streaming service like um, Apple TV might want to pick it up because it's, it is pretty much perfect for fodder for these kind of things because I don't it's certainly nothing like objectionable enough for anyone to be annoyed by it um it's it's almost as though it's carefully calibrated to be right down the middle of the road in pretty much every aspect mm. and um so it's exactly the kind of thing you can you can put on and it kind of bulks out a service and it's got the big names mm. um tom hanks it's a, it's a good performance I, i'd probably watch tom hanks reading the phone book these days so um it, that buys a lot of goodwill and i think if you'd cast almost anyone else in that role then we wouldn't be talking about it at all because it wouldn't have been of, it being of any interest whatsoever I agree with you. It's, it is fine. It's a fine film. It is a good bit of filler for um, both for streaming services and for if you got what was this? This is another fairly sh- short film as well. It can't be much more than ninety minutes of my memory serves. That's no, two um, hours. Two hours. Okay. Um, it, it it didn't quite feel it. I think it, it gets along well enough. Um, you'll believe that. Uh, <laughs> that a dog can love a robot if that's what it's uh, if that's what his aim was. Um, it's entirely inoffensive um, if you're a fan of Hanks or the, the kind of setting. It's it's worth a look, but yeah, I, I would not be beating down um, doors to get to it again. That's a good thing about streaming services. It's the kind of thing where I would never recommend anyone go to a cinema to see this. But if you already have Apple TV, then it's there. It's worth watching at least a bit of it to see if you get there, and that's a very easy recommendation to make. Um, yeah. It's fine. I've seen much worse. I've seen much better. Um, I'm not. I'm not angry at it for existing or having taken up two hours of my time. So, yes, it's not bad. It's content procurement, isn't it? They bought a Tom Hanks film, as they showed they were willing to do previously with Greyhound, and it's no doubt competent enough. I don't know because I haven't seen it, but they they've spent I don't know, let's say fifty million dollars to fill a thumbnail space on the front page of their streaming service. That's that, isn't it? And like you said, you weren't offended by it. No one's going to watch it, I imagine, and say, well, I demand my my, uh, subscription fee back this month. So, yeah, literally, it fills a gap on a a sector of a hard drive in a server somewhere, doesn't it? It sure does. It sure does. (laughs) See, I just find it frustrating. I just wanted a, a bit more grit, and it would have done a lot more for me. But it's just sort of, it kind of ambles along. It's like, oh. Um, yeah, there's there's that one scene where he's kind of recounting his little flashback of a uh, encounter in a grocery store or whatever yeah. it was, and uh, it could it could have done with a bit more of that or the the, the bit where the the robots investigating the ho- the hospital and it seems like something bad is going to happen. And it kind of just doesn't ultimately. Yeah, sort of um, does it, yeah, it doesn't really lead anywhere. It, it kind of faints in that direction, but I, I think it just doesn't want to get too doesn't want to get too dark because that might scare off people from it. So <laughs> yeah, could do with a bit more of a 
a bit more of a opinion on things, really. Yeah. yeah. I tell you one more thing it could do with as well, uh, Drew. You obviously raised the spectre of of short circuit, and I'm assuming that Finch probably wouldn't have been hurt by including more of Fisher Stevens blacking up and uh, adopting an Indian <laughs> accent. How come they don't show that film on network TV no more? <laughs> Do you know what's really weird? That that's not going to be the first time Fisher Stevens is mentioned in this episode. Whoa. Bet that surprised <laughs> you. Whoa. This Fisher Stevens singularity is upon us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but fortunately it has none of that. It it only has two characters, really, if you don't get the dog, so we're, we're spared that. <laughs> um and I suppose we're spared um the fact that Apple T V plus is track record on anything vague, even vaguely sci-fi at the moment is considerably better than Netflix's so <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> foundations bought them a lot of credit there whether you like the pace of it or not let's uh, let's compare that to the Cloverfield paradox yeah, so, well, I mean, do you know what really bought Apple TV Plus and I guess everybody else as well a lot of goodwill is by simply not having the Cloverfield paradox on mute <laughs> yeah for all, for all mankind and foundation. Right. Everyone else can catch up with that for a while. <laughs> right. As my voice continues to disappear down the toilet, let us uh, head to Drew for some discussion on the French dispatch. Although less limiting than the idea of picking a single favourite film, picking a favourite film director is a similarly futile and pointless endeavour. That said, if in some unlikely, difficult to imagine, and above all, violent aesthetic appreciation scenario, where a gun was put to my head and I was forced to pick. A a violent aesthetic appreciation scenario. (laughs) Good concept album name, I think. That was was Zappa, wasn't it? (laughs) Sorry, dude. I just wanted to take a moment out to appreciate where, where, where your mind had gone to there. <laughs> in um, said scenario, uh, Wes Anderson would certainly be one of the names in the forefront of my mind. Well, forefront of my mind would, of course, be The Gun. But, you know, <laughs> after that, uh, if you'd like to hear Scott and I talk in depth about his over and our love for it, then please check out our dedicated episode from February 2019. Mm. Anderson, or as he's occasionally known around here, Lord Whimsy Whimsington III, <laughs> is definitely not everyone's cup of tea. His very particular aesthetic and whimsical tone being something that, for a lot of people, is something you love or loathe. His films have always worked for me, though, and I enjoy the Anderson style whimsy. With the French Dispatch, however, I fear that operating as he is here at approximately 300% Wes Anderson, (laughs) I have finally found the point of too much Wes Anderson. Things certainly don't begin well for anyone unenamoured of the director's stylings, with pretty much the first thing we see being the name of the fictional Belleville Rendezvous recalling French city in which the film is set. Ennui sur blasé, or in English, boredom upon apathy, which had my eyes rolling back in my skull. And remember, (laughs) I like Wes Anderson. (laughs) The French Dispatch, with a cast including Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Mathieu Amalric, Francis McDormand, Benicio Del Toro, Timothy Chalamet, Tilda Swinton, Leah Seydoux and Geoffrey Wright, 
and in smaller roles, Jason Schwartzman, Sersha Ronan, Bob Balaban, Christoph Waltz, and, surprisingly, Fisher Stevens, who hasn't been retroactively <laughs> cancelled for short circuit. <laughs> that's, that's mental. I don't know that I've ever seen. I don't know that I've seen Fisher Stevens in anything <laughs> since short circuit. <laughs> oh damn! The French Dispatch is actually three stories in one. Well, actually three and a half stories plus added framing scenes. The conceit, my that's an appropriate word here, <laughs> is that the French Dispatch is a magazine a supplement to the fictional Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. Though what it actually is, is The New Yorker, very lightly disguised, run by Bill Murray's idiosyncratic editor, Arthur Howitzer Jr. When Howitzer dies, his will states that the magazine will cease publication after one final issue is produced, the articles of which comprise those three and a half stories. First, we have a travelogue, in which Owen Wilson's Erbson Sazerac on a bike in a beret it's like only a mercy it doesn't have onions in a basket in the front <laughs> gives a flavour of the life in Ennui replete with Corpsfield River pickpockets and roving gangs of choir boys following that is a tale of an incarcerated and insane artist Moses Rosenthaler whose work inspires a fellow inmate and art dealer who on his release, promotes Rosenthaler's work and makes him a global sensation, then gets pissed off and narky at the artists for not making any new work while in prison. The middle section, probably the weakest, sees a journalist get involved with the topic of her piece, a young political radical called Zeffirelli, who's trying to foment a rebellion. Despite this being clearly inspired by May 68, it is weirdly apolitical, despite being based on something very, very political. Here, I think it could be argued that Anderson's whimsy has finally gone too far, given its inspiration. Though, this doesn't mean it's not enjoyable, just that its taste is... questionable. The final story, the best, is a strange yet touchy amalgam in which a black gay American reporter, exiled to France for loving the wrong way, begins his story thinking that it's going to be about that great subgenre of gastronomy, police cuisine and its hero the legendary police chef Nescafier and then sees it end with car chases, kidnappings and gangsters. The French Dispatch is every bit as artificial as any Wes Anderson film but really every bit as funny beautiful and delightful too and infuriating. Wes Anderson's films tend to benefit from a repeat viewing even those that are great first time around and the second viewing can change how you feel about them completely. For example, while I didn't much care for Fantastic Mr. Fox the first time I watched it, I now love it, so I'll definitely watch The French Dispatch again. But it would certainly be asking a lot for an Anderson newcomer, or a hater, to commit to that. This is advanced level Wes Anderson, and only for the existing fans. (laughs) I did enjoy The French Dispatch, but it exasperated me as much as it delighted me. And, well, I'll leave the final words on this to another reviewer, Wendy Eide of The Guardian, who succinctly summed up how I felt about much of this when she wrote, On a first viewing, I found it to be amongst the most punchable films I have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) She's not wrong, but now I need to see it a second time. Sadly, I've yet to see it a first time, so um, despite my love for the dude, I will get to it in time. No, I was looking forward to this summer. Sad that I didn't get to see it, but I'm sure I will rectify that in time. 
and we can revisit it at that point, yeah. perhaps. I kind of blow hot and cold on Wes Anderson as the years have gone by. I haven't, I haven't watched anything, anything of his for a long time. Uh, I think Rushmore universally adored, right? I don't know anybody that dislikes Rushmore. Um, mm. I've got a real soft spot for Life Aquatic. Tenenbaums, I, I bounce off a bit, but I don't know if that's just because Paltrow's in it. Um, <laughs> Understandable, yeah. but to be fair, quite constantly Gwyneth Paltrow's best performance at anything. Yeah, as as I recall, yeah, my experience quite possibly, but um, I'll get around to the French Dispatch at some point. I just don't know when. <laughs> All of which chatter brings us round to the. I I suspect the the reason um, that. I don't know if I say most of you will be listening. If there's more than one listener, I don't know. Um, but certainly I suspect the film that uh, the only film on this roster that all three of us have seen and which I suspect we probably all want to talk about the most anyway, which is Denis Villeneuve's recent adaptation uh, of the first half, at least, of Frank Herbert's seminal 60s sci-fi novel, uh, June, the unfilmable novel which has now been adapted a third time um, <laughs> uh, Scott uh, I think it's probably fair to say that you have the most skin in the June game um, for varying values of skin I don't know I've not checked the exchange rate of skin against Bitcoin <laughs> or anything recently so uh, I th- would you like to uh, introduce us to the concept of June? <laughs> Yes, yes, and it's all Ethereum these days. Um, look, I know, how, how behind the times <laughs> am I? <laughs> uh, we've said in the past that nothing's unadaptable, but it's also fair to say that some works resist it more than others. Hence, June, Frank Herbert's seminal science fiction work, beloved by many, including me, is a rare instance where the best piece of movie or TV associate, uh, it's associated with is a documentary about a failed effort to adapt it, <laughs> Jodorowsky's June. Um, I could talk for hours about where David Lynch's June valiantly tried but ultimately failed, although I couldn't say the same about the TV miniseries, which may well hew closer to the text of the book, but somehow misses out on all of the life of it. Um, however, I suppose the question we're here to answer today is, can Denis the Mini Villeneuve get closer to the mark? <laughs> and, and the answer, and answer is we can't really answer it because one of the first things you'll see on screen, this is June part one, so we'll see you in October 2023. Oh, alright. Um, for the uninitiated, <laughs> for the uninitiated, June takes place in the very far future where humanity is spread across the galaxy under the rule of an emperor with planets ruled by the great houses such as Oscar Isaac's Duke Leto Atreides much respected by the other houses and thus seen as a threat by the emperor suspicious then that the Atreides are given the lucrative exclusive franchise to mine the precious drug spice from the planet Arrakis displacing their mortal enemies the Harkonnens headed by Stellan Starsgar's Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and Dave Bautista's Glossu Raban uh, to no one's surprise, it's a trap with, well, a series of traps and difficulties, some of which the Israeli staff can deal with, such as their human computer mentat, Stephen McKinley Henderson's Thufir Habit, Josh Brolin's army head, Gurney Halleck, and Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho, tasks with scouting ahead and making contact with the Arrakis natives, the Fremen, who are in equal parts feared and oppressed by their opponents, and whom Leto hopes to form an alliance with. Against all this upheaval, Leto tries to bring his somewhat reluctant son, Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides, closer into the family business of politicking and planning, as someday all this will be his. 
Well, it initially seems like the plan would might just be to let the Atreides fail by providing only garbage to your harvesters, which would be a disaster given that the spice must flow, as it's the only thing that enables safe interstellar travel. Uh, before long, a rather less subtle plan of all-out war is unfolded, the Empire and Harkonnens joining forces to batter them, with Paul and his mother, Rebecca Ferguson's Jessica, only just managing to escape into the desert with only their wits and Benny Gesserit's training that enhances the control over their bodies and power to control uh, the weaker of mind with their voice. And as it happens, they don't get much further than meeting a tribe of Fremen, headed by Javier Bardem's Stilgar and containing Zendaya's Shani, the woman of Paul's increasingly prescient dreams uh, as his powers awaken, before the credits roll, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot of plot to cover two and a half hours, even accounting for my simplifications and omissions. And... Well, while I have to first disclaim that I am not the person to come to for unbiased opinions about Dune, I'm recording this podcast wearing a Dune-themed t-shirt, although that's more of a (laughs) happy accident than by design, Um, but even had this been a crayon scribble with Villeneuve making pew-pew noises for two hours, I'd probably have still liked it, Uh, but... The thing that makes Dune difficult to translate is that even in the novel, no one loved it for the basic core of the hero's journey that's been done many times over, or even really for the characters, which, with only a few exceptions, aren't a lot more than job descriptions, if that, even if they are likably written and, in this film, likably performed. Uh, what people, or at least me-flavoured people, loved about the book was the scale of the universe that Herbert's concocted, some of which is detailed, uh, some of which is vague enough to provoke wonder, and the hints of what's happened in their, their distant past and our distant future, uh, like why the seemingly singular religion is still around, a mashup of Zen Buddhism, uh, Catholicism, Islam, and apparently every other religion as well, and quite how space travel and technology in general is supposed to work without mechanical computers, um, all these kind of things. Now, Lynch, arguably, mostly ignored this and focused on providing visual law. The miniseries tended towards lots of characters expositioning at each other and sent us all to sleep. Uh, Villeneuve, I think, does a pretty admirable job of threading these needles and giving enough detail to provoke that wonder with words as well as some jaw-dropping effects work in cinematography that continues Villeneuve's hot streak from Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Where his hands are a bit more tied even if by himself, is the film's structure, as it struggles to reach a natural endpoint after struggling to be beaten into something approximating a three-act structure. And, well, it's wound up feeling like it skipped the Star Wars and went straight to the Empire. Although, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I do want to open this up to the floor as I could waffle on about this in a wider <laughs> universe for hours, so I'll let you know that, unsurprisingly, I really enjoyed June, and while for the reasons aforementioned, character depth and structure primarily, it is certainly not a perfect film, it might be the perfect June film. Or half of it, at least. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I quite like this, but the biggest problem I had was I don't think it did a particularly great job of explaining this to people who haven't watched June before or read June before. Because yeah. I was watching this and I'm like, who's that? Why are they doing this? Why are there no computers? Is there a, actually is there an universal explanation for the lack of computers, Scott? Uh, there is, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it's not I can give it, I can give it to you if you're interested, but uh, it's a bit of a diversion. Perhaps later. Yes. Uh, is, is, uh, the, I think as the long and short of it, not that the human race decided that computers were quite troublesome and caused more trouble than they were worth. Essentially, yes. There was something yeah. called the Butlerian Jihad, which yeah. was more of a kind of uh, philosophical thing uh, where they felt that AI and computers were sort of taking away from what it meant to be human. And so they, they kind of fell out of fashion. They were like uh, treated with disdain. And that's what happens in the Dune book. If you're. Um, mm. 
insert rant about how um, Frank Herbert's son ruined everything by turning it into um, Terminator for some reason and his stupid, stupid prequels. Um, but let's skip past that and go back to talking about a film that I actually like. Mm. <laughs> um, I just wonder, wonder what there's maybe like a Battlestar Galactica sort of scenario, but obviously it's not. It wasn't supposed to be. Uh, depends on who, what you think is carried or not. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yeah, so the biggest film is like... I was kind of at sea for like who anybody was like, and it was kind of frustrating. I wanted to know more, so I, I guess that's good. It hooked me mm-hmm. because I didn't massively enjoy it, but I enjoyed it. It was a solid film, and I got to the end of it, and I, I was like, "Yeah, and and tell me more, please. I want the next part now." <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was very much my override day. So then it was like my only disappointment at the minute is I want to watch another two and a half hours of it, and it doesn't yeah. exist yet. <laughs> I would very happy to, and it's rather bold of Denny Villeneuve to have made or foolish possibly to have made half of the book and call it June part one given that there was no plan or agreement to necessarily make the next part when they made <laughs> yeah. it yeah. Uh, it was a gamble which mm. most people thought it wouldn't work because it was June yes. <laughs> um, it turned out to actually be hugely successful um, so uh, Warner Brothers greenlit it but you know, that was quite a gamble um, and also it's it doesn't end particularly well. Um, no, no. Partly that is because they ran out of money. Uh, what I'd heard was that because they want, it cost them extra money to make because they wanted to have those ornithopters on set. Hmm. That caused a budget right. overrun. And then the film actually ended like 10 or 15 minutes before where it was supposed to. <laughs> so they're just like, oh crap, we just need to wrap this film up. And it so it ends with a pointless inconsequential fight that doesn't seem to say anything and then come back in two years hmm. please because um, at that point they didn't know there would be another film so that's um, a bit awkward yeah yeah it it does look amazing even though you know I don't know why Denny Villeneuve thinks colour doesn't exist no that's not fair there's lots of colour in it it's just that any scene only has yeah. one of them yes some people have blue eyes Drew so get over it yes, I know, in the David Lynch version you can see the blue eyes without everything else being monochrome so um, <laughs> uh, it does look I, mean, I love the ship design it's almost like this film came from the person who directed Arrival isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it looks great I I didn't much care for the soundtrack. It's one of those Hans Zimmer soundtracks. It sounds like it's mostly made of vowels. Mm. Um, and I've That's, heard that several times before. Yeah. I actually thought it worked really well in June. Um, I didn't mention it, but I thought the soundtrack was brilliant in uh, June. The really, best. really worked for me. Um, lots of kind of weirdly, kind of very alien sounding things coming out at points as well, which I thought worked quite well for the scenes they were in. Uh, yeah. Some of it worked, um, but it's like it's the more vocal stuff and the sort of throat singing, it's like it just didn't oh, work yeah. for me. The film opens with throat singing and it absolutely gave me a raging boner. <laughs> um, he's also, up, he's a, he's a, Sorry? <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I think also I was perhaps again irritated because the cinema mix for it is not good. And I thought maybe it was just the cinema I was in, but I've um, read online that it's like the cinema mix is the dynamic range in it is completely screwed up to the point where the loud parts are painful and the quiet parts are inaudible. Like in a, like the scene with the box where Rebecca Ferguson's outside the door like whispering about fear being the mind killer and stuff. Mm. In the cinema, you can't hear her. You can barely hear a word she says. 
um, despite the fact that, as I say, the top end of it is deafening. So I didn't have the best experience because the sound mix is bad in the cinema. The home version is different. You know, well done there, whoever was in charge of that. Yeah, so I got to the end of it, really quite enjoyed it. Um, and then decided, oh, what I should do is watch the David Lynch one again. <laughs> oh dear. Look, if you're going to complain about the soundtrack in this one, you can't really complain about the soundtrack in June because uh, Herbert's June, uh, sorry, Lynch's June repeats that. Is it total score so much? Mm. It's a. Uh, it's like it's song, like yeah. it's like a form of water torture. I love it, but it's <laughs> mental. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking with it. I watched that mostly because I wasn't going to read the book. I was like, I wanted to like get more of a hand up. going on. It intrigued me enough to make me go and watch that. Um, yeah. Oh, if you're going, to, if you're going to David Lynch films looking for an explanation, if you're doing I something know. seriously wrong. Yes, I, I think Jim was doing something seriously wrong there. Um, yes. Then he found a fun. Um, although, yeah, weirdly, what I actually, I don't know, on a tangent here, going back to the 1985 film, 1985, uh, mm. is that that film is not as bad as or as boring to remember. I was quite interested in it, apart from the fact that the voiceover and the constant voicing of inner monologue is, I was going to say intolerable, and intolerable is the, the word I thought at least a hundred times while watching it. <laughs> but given that I got to the end of it, it can't actually have been intolerable. But yeah. <laughs> And it's weird that David Lynch film where it's spelling out everything. That's a weird <laughs> film. Um, <laughs> but it does. It did strike me that there's there were a few bits in the 2021 film that feel very similar to the David Lynch one, almost slavishly. Like that he was Denny Villeneuve was adapting that film rather than adapting the book. I don't know the books. I don't know how accurate that is. But that's how it read to me. Although the one thing conspicuously that Denny Villeneuve didn't put in his film was the terrible terrible voiceover that explained everything so I just wanted to punch the screen every time somebody voiced in our thoughts again it was driving me crazy and there were a few changes from that which makes sense part of the reason I went back was what happened to the Sting character and I realised that in the original film the Sting character doesn't actually have any purpose or do anything at all so it's quite good that they sort of combined him and the other cousin into Dave Batista. Um, um, I don't think they've done that. They'll bring him back for the second film. It, it's so. uh, it no, no. It, it, I think it explicitly isn't. They, they don't. They don't set it up. But the whole point is that they, they bring in the Dave Batista character in the next film will be seen to squeeze the the, the natives of Fremen, uh, the Fremen and all the Arrakis natives, and then they bring in. The, the idea is that they can bring in Fade the whoever the sting analog will be in the next film as as a kind of, uh, will be seen as a liberator kind of deal. And they'll do the same thing in the second film with a bit more time to um, open up. But there's no particular need to introduce him in the first film, I don't know, I don't think. But I think they probably should have done. Um, it's kind of conspicuous by its absence. Um, I'm certain they'll bring it in, but in a film where it seems like it could have done a lot more to talk about. Well, maybe that's why they didn't bring it in. I think a lot of the characters are quite ill-served. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I let it get away with a lot of things because the actors they've for them, picked for them are particularly well-fitted and kind of make up for a lot just by bringing their either natural charisma or just their ability to it. Like, uh, I think perhaps the reason they didn't go into much thing about explaining what a mentat is that um, would be that they've just kind of almost entirely written out the kind of mentat role entirely, whereas they've given a bit more role to 
Jason Momoa because Jason Momoa was a big charismatic bastard <laughs> and he, he's just magnetic yeah. when he's on the screen and it's not one to play with uh, Timothy Chalamet kind of does a good job of humanising both characters without actually ever really explaining what either character does <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean um, it, which I guess kind of works for the film I mean you wouldn't expect anyone to like someone to just stop there and say ah here is Josh Brolin. You are the weapons master and head of all of the armies that you see here. What would you like to do with the armies that you are in charge of? And it doesn't do anything like that, which is good. But yeah, yeah I think could, the script could maybe use a bit of tweaking to make that a bit more obvious to someone that's not read the book. Yeah, yeah although on the upside, Josh Brolin definitely works in that role much better than Patrick Stewart. Yes. <laughs> Tiny amount that he's on screen. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, they've got a number of really big actors in here to be in tiny tiny roles um yeah I, I guess with the hope that they would get to make the second part but geez, yeah. It's, yeah um that's quite surprising um yeah i like the the acting for the most part um although stellan skarsgård is the baron that character is weird in this film but the david lynch one actually creepy so creepy's better <laughs> but, um yeah i, I started this with talking about sting just because i've watched the david lynch thing and the sting character is completely pointless in that film Seems to serve very little purpose. Uh, I've completely lost any point I was going to make, so I'll just let Craig speak, other than to say that where this, where the David Lynch film definitely has this film beat, though, is the eyebrow game. Very disappointing. Yeah, a lot of, uh, <laughs> lot of quality, quality um, <laughs> eyebrows in the uh, Lynch mm-hmm. one, yeah, for sure. I So I, I think a couple of times I've tried to, I've tried to, read June and when I get 10 pages into a book and I'm like I really don't like Frank Herbert's style all that much here and then people whose opinions I trust in all other manner of things and actually and I'm not sort of this is not a coded reference to yourself Scott because I don't think we've ever had much of a conversation about June besides the two hour commentary we recorded a couple of years (laughs) ago which I have no recollection of right um but other people have said to me, oh, yeah, you just have to get a bit further into it, by by which they mean X number of pages. Ugh, I don't really want to have to read 100 pages of something to feel engaged by it. So the, I think the first time I tried to read June, I was probably like 12 when I really started getting into like Philip K. Dick and stuff like that and sci-fi in general. And I've I've always just bounced off it. So I, I come to this film with... Um, this adaptation with actually very little appreciation and or understanding of the source material, if Mm. I'm honest. And I've always felt like um, that was a real sort of blind spot for me as as someone who's always really enjoyed science fiction, because I think it's, it's one of those keystone texts that it's kind of like, Oh, you know, I've, I've actually never seen Citizen Kane either. So what right do I have to be here talking about films? Uh, and I've never read June. So what right do I have to be here on a film podcast talking about June? (laughs) And I honestly think that's probably served me quite well because there is not a great deal about this film that I didn't really, really enjoy. And I suspect that might be because I was able to approach it on its own terms. And I know I remember enough of the David Lynch adaptation 
to know that um, obviously he doubled down on a lot of the stuff that you would expect to appeal to David Lynch, like the Guild Navigators. There's a nightmarish vision that you can understand why Lynch wanted to put that on screen. I also completely understand why Villeneuve has decided to sidestep some of that stuff, certainly for this instalment. I don't know if we'll get to see them in, in part two. On which topic, by the way, anyone who thinks that part two was in any doubt as to being made needs to get back on their meds because there's no way part two was ever not going to get made. That's It's just bananas to think otherwise, frankly, but don't get me started on that. So This that, is one of those we're talking about, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, but that... Yes, I wonder, I wonder what ploy we could engage in order to drive people into the cinema. Well, here's this greatly beloved sci-fi uh, text, which, oh, don't know, we've made one half of it, but I suppose it'll depend whether people go to see it or not and, and or sign up to our uh, online subscription service as to whether we ever make the second part. Of course they were going to make the second part. So, yeah, it's just, it's just really annoying that we're going to have to wait two years to get to see it because I really, really liked this. And I, I watched this from the comfort of my sofa. And for a film that's so grand in scope, I honestly didn't feel it like I was losing out on too much. I still enjoyed it. I still really enjoyed the spectacle of it all. And by the way, the production film of the production design, sorry, of this film, if this isn't the pinnacle of production design mm. for movies, <laughs> full stop. I don't know what other film you would make the case for. I think it was absolutely astonishing. And I think yeah. Villeneuve has made what I perceive to be, but again, I'm not speaking from a point, uh, from a place of authority on this, but to my mind, it looks like he has made a lot of really good choices about what should be kept and what should be omitted in service of making a novel, which I understand at least firsthand from the first 10 pages to be very difficult to penetrate, actually accessible to a wider audience. Yeah. I didn't have a great deal of questions about what was going on. I didn't find it that difficult to infer the parts I wasn't clear about. I, I was able to establish an understanding from things that were happening around, um, from choices that Villeneuve made because Villeneuve, for all of his flaws, because he's not perfect, he's done some things that I really, really like and other things that I'm not so hot on, but he is absolutely a director who respects our intelligence as an audience and is really happy to show and not tell. So thank you. Yeah. He's made some really, really smart choices, I think, uh, in deciding what to bring to screen and what not to bring to screen, at least for this first part. And I, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that I didn't like about it, which is not to say I was absolutely head over heels in love with this movie, but I really, really freaking enjoyed it. It did not feel as though it was pushing three hours at all. Um, visually, I know what you're saying, Drew, about the, the stylistic choice there in terms of the colour palette and stuff. It just, it wasn't a problem for me at all. I'm, I'm, that's that's a legitimate choice. And after 10 plus years of having my, um, uh, you know, rods and cones at the back of my eyeballs, <laughs> absolutely saturated by crimson and royal blue and gold, thanks to Marvel, like, you know, a muted palette with a couple of pop colours, not a problem. I actually found it quite refreshing. The, th the thing that Villeneuve does, which 
most other directors I can think of really can't get their head around is a sense of scale. And he's really happy just to take his time and to languish on the sort of grandeur of, I know a lot of people have spoken about, it's like, oh, just like the scale of these like ships gradually floating down to the surface of the planet and stuff. But it's, it's, it's an absolutely legit observation because if you're going to tackle something like this, you need to be able to convey the scope of it. And I think that's why he has proven to be such a good choice in adapting this. He's He's got a really firm grasp of how to translate scale to the screen. And I think the fact that I got a sense of that scale watching this at home, as opposed to, I would have liked to have seen it on a big screen, but I knew I wasn't going to get the opportunity. But the fact that it's worked for me on the small screen says something about the choices he's made and his, his skills as a, as a director. I, mm. I was going to say, I don't think there is a single flaw in the effects work that this is like the most consistently seamless uh, and transparent effects work that I've ever seen in a film. But then I think about the, uh, what's the crazy look creature, the Harkonnen, is it the Harkonnen spider people refer to it as? That's all legs. Try that. I can't think what you're referring to there. What's that weird creature that you only see at the one time? And I'm sure yeah, it's, it's like, just like one scene. Oh, like it's in the corner, that, corner of a room, isn't it? That yeah. weird pet thing, yes. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I don't remember that being in the book, um, but I, it would seem like a strange thing to just put in. But no, um, that, people that's have, weird. Yeah, people have referred to it. And I'm sure they've called it the Harkonnen spider, but I don't, like I say, I'm not speaking from a place of authority in this, but actually when I cast my mind back, I think I might have looked at that and gone, oh, that's a bit of a letdown given the rest of the stuff, but I don't know. Um, I really think, I don't think he's made a particularly bad decision with this, perhaps quite apart from, like you say, Drew, my understanding of the whole thing about running out of budget due to the, having physically the ornithopters on set. I just, that was one of those things that when I saw it on screen, the first time that we see the ornithopters and we see them in flight and we <laughs> see them prepping for tape, I'm just like, oh God, yes, right. Somebody gets it. <laughs> And everything just looks so real and lived in and uh, believable for something which is such a flight of fancy. Um, and do you know what I think the pinnacle of this film is? Who who among us does not want Oscar Isaac in this film as their dad? <laughs> that beard. It's very reassuring, isn't it? Oh, my God. Oh, Oscar Isaac. Why can't we all have a beard of that quality? But do you know what? He's earned it. <laughs> and that point where um, he says the line to Paul about, even if you choose not to, like, secede me, even if you um, even if you choose not to take on the, the, the mantle of the head of house, you'll, you'll still be the only thing that I ever needed you to be, my son. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, oh, Oscar Isaac. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to just hug my TV. What a great dad. What a great dad. What a great imperialist father. If you're going to be imperialist, then I guess Oscar Isaac's uh, uh, perhaps the best you can be. There is, I I know people often comment on in the same way that... um, Christopher Nolan is often, uh, the accusation is often levied at him of his films lacking uh, humanity. I think um, Denis Villeneuve, to an extent, I think you could maybe level some of the same criticism at him, though I don't think he's anywhere near as bad. But that there there is such a, a depth of character and warmth here that I wasn't necessarily expecting uh, in this film. Uh, you, Scott, you mentioned Jason Momoa. 
a bit of a man crush on Jason Momoa in this film. I'd like I totally get why my wife uh, quite fancies Jason Momoa when you see his interactions with with Paul. It's kind of like yeah, Jason, you know, Momoa in this film. Uh, what's his character's name again? Duncan Idaho. Yeah, the uh, little interaction where he hugs him is like, oh, you put on muscle, have I? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. What are you like? Oh, jokes the entire film. Yeah, <laughs> that so joke and the I am smiling thing that Josh Brolin <laughs> says. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you've you've got Oscar Isaac who you want to be your dad. You've got Jason. Momoa more who you want to be your big brother and then you've 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 got your man um gurney halleck uh uh you've just said his name drew and i've forgotten already josh brolin who who kind of like oh yeah he he would be a great uncle slightly a little bit a little bit fascist but uh you know i still i still love him i look forward to him coming around at christmas and getting a bit drunk and saying stuff he shouldn't say um (laughs) the the only film the only thing that i think this film is lacking in which i hope the second uh, part picks up is a lot more to do for the female characters my understanding is that the novel is uh if not entirely centered around female characters it certainly has much more for them to do but i don't know scott you would be the person to ask about that well i i mean maybe um how to put it i think that um Jessica Trady should get a bit more screen time in the second one, uh, where yeah. she's becoming get, gets into her role a bit more, where she kind of becomes more of a kind of um, soothsayer, mm-hmm. medicine woman type uh, role to to the tribes that they'll be going on to, and that will kind of feed into it. And Chani is a, a, a will be a very important character, hopefully, yeah. in the next one. And you know, well, <laughs> she better be because you don't want to waste Zendaya doing nothing. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, what she, is she kind of is in this one? What is a Zendaya and what she do? I I don't think <laughs> I had any knowledge of Zendaya coming into this, and then when someone's bold enough to sort of uh, to go by a you know a a, a mono uh, nomenclature, I was like, oh, okay, so you clearly feel you've got some level of importance. I should know you by you know I should know you by one name along the likes of Madonna, but I don't think I've seen Zendaya in anything. I don't. Is she an actor? She strikes I've me as a type of Spider Man films, no. I've not I've not been watching the Spider-Man films recently no. I've not seen any of the Tom Holland Spider-Man films. I I was working on the assumption that perhaps she was a a pop star who had turned her hand to acting. I, no, I, I believe she might Disney be as well. Star or something no. No. Yeah, she's very popular with the youth of today. Um, which we don't know about because we're old. So yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, she looks very pretty in slow mo with um, with like silk gowns flowing out behind her and stuff in the desert sun. But I'm hoping that the second part um, gives her something more to do. And this is the first time, um, certainly, that I've come out of a, a, a viewing experience where Rebecca Ferguson has been part of that. Where I feel like I actually understand who she is as an actress, as an actor. Mm. Because I don't feel like she's perhaps been given enough to do in most of the other stuff I've seen her in, and she does at least get some key scenes in this film. And I did, I did finish this film thinking I wish we'd spent more time with her. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all of these things are are uh, potentially things which might be addressed in the second uh, part. Um, I've read a couple of articles online where people have said. Um, oh, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a pacing problem with this film because they've gotten to the desert too quickly, and now part two has got to be all desert, and it's going to be very difficult to make that exciting. Lawrence of Arabia, mother. 
Yeah. <laughs> what? Possibly the best film ever made set in a desert and it lasts four hours. Yes, yeah. and it's and it's gorgeous to look at. Right. And you've not um, you've not even got to the bit where they're riding the sandworms yet. You teased it and you pulled it away from us, you bastard. Yeah. Um we'll get that, that was, in the next one. That was the that was the only bit that I thought was a little bit egregious was that bit where they're looking through the they're looking through as I think they're looking through the binoculars towards the end and you actually you actually see the uh, the 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 dude or the dudette, I can't remember, riding riding on the sandworm. This thing which has been <laughs> promised by people preparing the hooks, but it never quite comes to fruition. And then, uh, is, is it Paul who just sort of looks and nods and goes... Desert power. I just wish, <laughs> I just wish that line hadn't been there. That sort of echo of his dad's line and the sort of like smug smirk, like "Yeah, I'm going to ride some sandworms, bitch." Um, <laughs> I just, I wish that bit hadn't been there. But again, am I looking forward to Timothy Chalamet riding a sandworm? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I just, I, I don't find a lot to fault with this film at all. I just think it's uh, astonishing in terms of its production design. I think Villeneuve has made some really smart choices. I know that I was entertained watching it because the time flew by, but at the same time, I was able to appreciate it, it was a film that clearly understands its source material materially enough to know that, regardless of the parts it might omit for, uh, you know plot streamlining purposes that um it, it still it still needs time just to sometimes languish on a shot of a massive ship floating through some sort of um interstellar stargate thing or or uh, gently coming to settle on the ground or just spending time floating around in an ornithopter um <laughs> spending time with characters people doing things like talking to each other in between stabbing each other all that kind of jazz that if you're not careful um tends towards character i think it used to be called in films at some point yeah i just really really like this it's not going to trouble like my top 10 favorite films of all time but as someone who maybe didn't understand dune all that much to begin with i still know how nervous fans of that material were about another adaptation and i really hope they enjoyed it as much as i do because i feel like it's probably done the source material a bit of justice and I would like the people who are actually invested in it to feel the way that I feel about it. I really, really liked it. I can't imagine it being done better um, with still having some kind of hope of explaining it to or having it play to an audience that doesn't know the book. Um, things like, as I say, that that whole um, the whole mentat thing. If you if you start bringing up what a mentat is, that's a half hour rabbit hole you need to go down <laughs> as to why they exist and what they're doing, and it's best just to write it out because it's ultimately not that important to this uh, story um, and I think what this did much better than any other adaptation is kind of managing to kind of mesh together that kind of weird mix they have of like feudal structures and kind of weird high sci-fi concepts yeah. um, not necessarily by spelling it out narratively or having people explain it to each other but by just kind of some kind of family interactions and then following that up with these kind of really hugely impressive visual vistas that um, film mm. conjured out of things. Um, there's moments, and look, I'm as jaded by effects work as anyone else, but there's a few moments where um, my jaw may not have physically dropped, but at least mm. in the metaphorical sense it was, I was kind of going, ooh, that's nice. <laughs> and uh, it's been a long time since I've seen any film that's had that kind of effect on me. 
yeah. possibly Blade Runner 2049 it might have been um, yeah. can, we, yeah. can we take a moment though Scott just like when we're talking about a film that looks this good and I really did love how it looked um, maybe not particularly hitting the right notes for me in terms of you know, saturation mm. and palette um, all the time anyway but um, the film that looks this good can we take a moment to hate the poster which is garbage because all posters are garbage it's the same stupid pile of heads that all posters have, including <laughs> one in this um, episode, which is the Venom poster. Mm. They all look the same. Yeah. So like, take a pile of heads and stick them in a sort of triangle shape. All <laughs> posters. I yeah. hate it. <laughs> yeah, not the best given the production design of the rest of it, which yes. is just absolutely stunning. I mean, there's even simple things like the um, there's one scene towards the end where the Baron is is doing his, his floaty thing because the kind of floating thing was used quite a lot in the um, Lynch version of June mm. this kind of anti-gravity belt and it's not really used all that much in this one apart from that cool scene at the end where um, you know and his robes also go down to the floor so it just looks like he's this amazingly tall person floating towards someone yeah. and it's, it's really eerie and well, that's yes yes this is another good scene thank you Denny oh yeah and <laughs> In this film, that definitely plays more like magic than technology, which I believe it's supposed to be. But um, mm. certainly looks interesting. But yeah, um, so I'm st- I'm still stuck on the poster thing. For a film that looks this distinctive and very much of its own thing, why does this poster look like every other film's poster? <laughs> Who's in charge of this? Uh, where can I get them to kill them? <laughs> I think you need to let go of your hate, man. I've I've stopped being bothered about posters because honestly, what purpose do movie posters serve anymore when all anyone talks about are trailer reveals and stuff? Um, I don't know. Have you have you seen a poster up anywhere for June? I know we could we come across it online, but and it'll be a thumbnail eventually on a streaming service. But I don't know. I I don't care about mm. posters anymore. They are lazy, and it is disappointing, I suppose, but. Let go, Drew. Let go. <laughs> Let go, Drew. Mm. Use the force. Wrong film. <laughs> Same concepts. Lucas yes. stole them. Exactly. <laughs> A lot of inverted commas borrowed concepts. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Um, quite an astonishing piece of filmmaking in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, I... Uh, I th- I think um, at least a couple of new bars have been set and um, the stuff that isn't the raising of the bar is still at least on a par with pretty much a lot of the best that you could find elsewhere as it is. So, mm. yeah, really frustrating to think that there's another uh, two years to wait for the next part. But. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, uh, it's going to be a long wait for me because um, I really want to see it, um, but yeah. I shall... Look forward to it immensely, and uh, no doubt we'll rewatch this many times over. And uh, um, yes. if, if it needs to be said, yes, it has my recommendation, just a mild one. Um, if, if you've not seen it already, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, put it on your list. You know, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Give and it even a- even even if even if the sort of your understanding of of the source material of Dune might normally put you off from this kind of thing and even if you're not a particularly huge fan of sci-fi like um but my wife really enjoyed this and I don't think she was expecting to but she still came away um sort of nodding approvingly and uh, and <laughs> commenting on actually how much she enjoyed it so um 
I definitely think everybody should take a pop at it, even if sci-fi is not normally your thing. It's not it's it's not laser gun sci-fi, is it? Because again, like guns are a thing that doesn't exist in this um this universe, uh, laser or or otherwise. So mm-hmm. um yeah. All good in the hood. I really hope, uh, as much for, um, or perhaps more so for yourself, Scott, than than for anyone else, even myself. I hope the next two years passes quite promptly, um, <laughs> and that uh, the second part lives up to the the promise of the first. But I think that just about concludes tonight's episode. Um, uh, Scott, where can people reach us if they feel so inclined? Uh, you can do so uh, through emails at podcast at com. We're also on Twitter uh, at FudsOnFilm and Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm. Oh, by Joe, so many options to choose from. Um, so we will be back again in uh, approximately uh, 10 days uh, with some more uh, blether, which I'm not entirely sure we've made up our mind what the nature of that blether will be yet. But nonetheless, we'll see you there. Uh, I have been Craig. I thank you for your time and... I'm sure also thanking you for your time are Scott. Goodbye. And Drew. Goodbye. See you all soon.